welcome to episode 75 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Michael Casey, formerly senior columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And as of last week, I think, right, Mike? That's right. You're the senior advisor to the MIT Media Lab Digital Currency Initiative, uh, uh, which is very exciting. He's also the author, um, along with his uh, Wall Street colleague, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal colleague, Paul Vigna, of The Age of Cryptocurrency, How Bitcoin and Digital Money Are Challenging the Global Economic Order. So we'll be talking to him uh, uh, at the uh, uh, end of the uh, roundup. Uh, we're also joined by Michael Vadis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, by Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime uh, prosecutions, among other things, and is doing criminal and civil litigation here, by Alan Cohn, uh, uh, formerly with DHS, where he was the Assistant Secretary for Strategy Planning, Analysis, and Risk, and second in charge overall of the DHS Policy Office. He's now of counsel to Steptoe, and by Meredith Rathbone, uh, partner in our international department here in the D.C. office, to talk uh, to help us do a deeper dive on the uh, new cybersecurity export control regs. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, and currently practicing law at Steptoe and Johnson. So let's get started. Uh, uh, the uh, The first story I think of the week was uh, um, the crypto wars heating up. I I said in a I. I did a blog post on this. I sort of feel like a veteran of the Great War who just discovered his, his war has been demoted to the World War One uh, by a bigger conflict. Uh, there is now a second uh, 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 crypto war uh, uh, that uh, the FBI and the Justice Department are prosecuting. Uh, uh, and uh, they went to the Hill um, Testified uh, to both judiciary and to the uh, intelligence committee uh, committees, and got what was described, I think, generally as a surprisingly good um, reaction, which is not the same as a good reaction or one that's likely to produce uh, um, legislation. But um, they had a number of Democrats as well as Republicans expressing uh, support for doing something about uh, the uh, impact of encryption on law enforcement. Um, Jason, uh, did you uh, follow those uh, those hearings? I did. I, I think to some degree the less unfavorable response reaction than, than perhaps was expected is because they've gotten better at communicating exactly what it is they're asking and what they're not asking. Um, it's very easy to demagogue on this issue, and uh, the privacy groups uh, have demagogued successfully on this issue and tried to paint it as the government seeking backdoors to encrypted communications or seeking to expand their uh, authorization to wiretap communications when, in fact, that's not what the issue is at all. The issue is in situations in which the government already has obtained court authorized wiretaps or search warrants uh, in in which a judge has already been satisfied that there's probable cause to believe that the the device or the communications are relevant to a a crime or or terrorism investigation, can the government actually execute on that order? Uh, And and is there a technological obstacle? And so they've done, I think, a more effective job this round than than in recent years, because this has been a priority even before anybody knew who Snowden was. It's become a bigger priority given the reaction to Snowden by providers. But they've done a much better job over time explaining that what they're asking for 
is uh, the ability to execute on the authority they already have, not an expansion of authority. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're a technologist, you're saying, well, how would I do that except by putting in a back door uh, right. or a front door or a side door, but a door? Uh, and so uh, this is one where it is easy to demagogue on, on, on both sides of this, uh, and uh, uh, we have a sort of unilateral restraint on the demagoguery on the part of the government, but it's it's got to be obvious to uh, the technology community that uh, uh, that unilateral restraint is going to end at some point. Well, it is an example of something we talk about quite a bit on this broadcast, which is that the Snowden leaks, which had nothing to do with the way criminal law enforcement has operated in the past, are having a profound impact on the way criminal law enforcement is going to operate in the future. Yeah. And this is just another manifestation of that. I think that's right. Michael, uh, uh, any thoughts on this? Well, um, no, but just to say that, of course, it's hotly followed in uh, the, you know, Bitcoin community that I um, have, have some association with. Of course, lots of folks there very much on the side of you know, ensuring that there are not back doors or side doors or front doors. Um, it, it's, and I suppose one of the other things that might come, I don't know that the issue that well, but I would just make the point that um, it's a um, you know it's a concern for uh, uh, the, the, the very idea that, that information would be stored at a um, at some of these you know, companies and you know, for an into sort of permanent period of time would be would be a concern as well. Yep, I. Um I wrote uh, my blog post over the weekend. Uh, uh, talked a little bit about the fact that um, uh, something close to two dozen um, uh, technology encryption experts uh, said uh, uh, we're we're interested in seeing what the government's design is. Um, uh, uh, we don't think it's possible to uh, to do this without endangering security. So. Uh, the, it's up to the government to produce a, de, uh, a design, and uh, I contrasted that to how we would feel if uh, uh, a company that sold exploding airbags said, uh, "Well, this is the, we think this is the best you can do, uh, but if the government's got a better design, we'll take a look at it and give you our comments." Uh, uh, we'd 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 be outraged uh, uh, that they responded to that uh, uh kind of a situation by uh, by saying well it's not up to us to uh, to design a product that meets social uh requirements it's up the gov- up to the government and our job is then to criticize what the government design produces um uh, as you might expect the reaction to that uh, has been mixed at best uh, uh the other uh, encryption news uh, is that uh, uh, Hacking Team, which is a notorious uh, supplier of uh, hacking services around the world, basically, it's, it is the answer to the FBI's, uh, it's the interim answer to the FBI's uh, uh, prayers in the sense they, they say, yes, your communications are encrypted, so you'll have to hack the, uh, the endpoint. Uh, and they developed a bunch of technology to hack endpoints. Uh, and sold it to uh, uh, third world governments and the FBI uh, um, and then uh, had all of their or many of their emails uh, um, hacked out of their own system and put online. I think WikiLeaks has uh, done their usual thing of putting it online with a uh, a search function. Uh, um, uh, So, Jason, did you uh, follow this one? I did. It's proof that the Internet has a sense of karma uh, (laughs) because this company is, as you said, known as a seller of hacking tools to a variety of governments, some with questionable human rights records, some with unquestionably bad human rights records, and uh, and to private companies as well. And and now they've 
they uh, all, everything that they've reaped has come back to to be sewn on them. A um, ton of corporate documents uh, posted online, kind of a mini Sony. Uh, reportedly, though, including the code, the source code for some of the products. And, and, and all of the zero days that they've been using, which are yeah. now being uh, uh, rapidly patched, probably not quite as rapidly as they're being exploited. That's right. But, that's uh, right. It's uh, a race in time. Uh, uh, believe me, if you get if if you get a uh, suggestion that you update your Adobe software, um, it, you should do you it. You should do it. Yeah, exactly. Or anything anything made by Microsoft, you should do it as well. Um, and so they're now warning that that you know criminals and terrorists can use the products that that they designed uh, to help these these third world governments. Um, and it's, as you said, it's a race to see if the, the holes can be patched before they can be exploited. It's a staggering blow to the company, for sure, uh, and uh, uh, not too much sympathy on the Internet for them. But, uh, uh, frankly, you could do that to most companies and uh, seriously uh, injure their business. Uh, uh, well, the right to be forgotten uh, is determined not to be forgotten. Uh, uh, consumer watchdog, uh, really an ineffable uh, public interest group, uh, really a public disinterest group uh, uh, wants to uh, to say that the uh, right to be forgotten is implicit in the FTC Act. Uh, um, you know, uh, given the uh, imagination that the FTC has shown in interpreting the FTC Act, I'm I'm reluctant to say that that's impossible, Jason. Uh, even for the FTC, I think this might be a, a reach bridge too far. <laughs> um, it, it's a remarkable uh, complaint by Consumer Watchdog saying that the fact that Google holds itself out as protective of privacy yet doesn't offer the right to be forgotten in the United States like it does in Europe um, renders it, uh, their, uh, them guilty of an unfair and deceptive trade practice because uh, it is there's a key privacy tool that they are denying to U.S. users. They're not claiming that they are giving it to U.S. users, so I'm not sure how it could be deceptive. Um, and uh, and they, they point to the fact that, that Google has managed to implement this in Europe under pressure, uh, and has said that it'll honor requests to remove links to revenge porn, as we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, and say that those two things demonstrate that this could easily be done in the U.S. And the fact that Google chooses not to do it uh, makes it, uh, uh, you know, false when it claims that it, it's protective of privacy. Like I said, even for the FTC, I think this is a little bit of a stretch beyond they, recognition. They're always dancing along the edge of. Uh, um being brought up short by the First Amendment uh, because they are regulating speech. Um, and uh, they've got to be a little cautious about uh, uh, suggesting that uh, um, they can require companies to hide information. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, my guess is this is going nowhere. Uh, unlike Canada, Mike, uh, Mike Battis, uh, Canada is apparently uh, continuing to push the right to be forgotten. Uh, yeah, not in so many, not so many terms, but um, the High Court of British Columbia has, has ruled that Google has to take down uh, or block uh, websites of the defendant in the intellectual property dispute. Yeah, uh, and, and it's, it, it's, it's global, right? It's a global ban. Right, it's worldwide. Google has, Google has to take down the, the uh, websites on the search results anywhere in the world. Google wasn't even a party to the case, so it's, it's really got pretty broad ramifications. That's astonishing. Why don't they just? Why don't they uh, enjoin us from talking about it too? Uh, since we're equally uh, unrelated to the to the uh, 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 to the case, that's that's bizarre. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I think I think the right to be forgotten is gaining um, currency outside of the EU. Um, it, it's going to continue to spread. We may end up being uh, a lonely island uh, where free speech 
still available. Well, more like a free fire zone where anybody who wants to have something forgotten can can shoot into the United States because apparently uh, uh, neither Congress nor the administration cares uh, who censors uh, uh, our right to know things. Uh, uh, sort of disappointing uh, uh, on both the, on both parts. Uh, but uh, uh, I I am going to uh, see if I can. Uh, find a way to dig into the BBC's list of uh, stories that they've been ordered to forget. Uh, actually, that uh, that Google has told them it's going to forget on on uh, the BBC's behalf. So we finally have a trove of actual decisions where Google has decided it's obliged to uh, de-link uh, stories, and that may give us a chance to really understand exactly what standards are being applied by Google, uh, uh, since apparently we've delegated to them uh, the uh, the censoring of the Internet for the world. Um, well, not for the world yet, uh, soon. Uh, the, the thing I wanted to spend some time on, though, was uh, the export control regulation that uh, has been uh, put out, was almost... Uh, 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 Four weeks ago, uh, and it's the comments are due July 20, so it's coming up soon. Um, and it's a it's a remarkably big deal in the cybersecurity world, uh, um, it, but it's gotten only limited attention up to now. Uh, we've got a lot of clients who have um, uh, concerns about it, uh, uh, so uh, we've been digging into it. But uh, um, uh, I'm going to ask Meredith to give us a you know. 50-second overview of what the uh, uh, the reg requires. <laughs> well, it's a hard one to uh, to summarize in 50 seconds. Okay, so take broad, a minute and a half. But I'll, do, <laughs> I'll do my best. So basically, this reg uh, came out of um, a multilateral arrangement on export controls called the WASNAR arrangement, and the U.S. is uh, just now, uh, after about two years, um, proposing some revisions to its own regulations. And they would cover two things at a high level. One is hacking tools, so um, intrusion software, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I'm, I'm sure, as we talk through this, and the uh, technology and systems related to intrusion software, and then IP network surveillance tools, uh, you know, stuff like deep packet inspection, combined with big data tools. And, you know, they, I think, know the types of things that they want to regulate. They want um, to regulate hacking team. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. They want to regulate, uh, you know, certainly black hat hacking and, uh, and um, you know, large-scale IP network surveillance. But they're having a really, really hard time uh, actually writing the regulations in a way that accurately and clearly describes what they want to control. And so uh, our clients in the industry generally are very concerned about the, the breadth of this rule. So, you know, export controls have traditionally been used to keep military technology out of the hands of uh, first the Soviet bloc and then a handful of rogue nations like North Korea and Syria and Iran. This is a completely different Rule though it, it it the the motivation is human rights and a sense that uh, we shouldn't let other governments um, uh, use these tools to um, break into the computers of their own citizens uh, or to monitor the communications of their citizens. At least that's what it looks like. That's what it seems to be, and that's uh, at least in part, you know, and that's and that's what we've heard kind of through the the 
uh, rumor mill, so to speak. That's the buzz. Um, you know, I think that there are potentially legitimate reasons to control some of these things for uh, other bad actors who may not be governments who are trying to hack into, you know, companies. Uh, well, yeah, systems, you could you could imagine that that uh, uh, hacking team, uh, if asked by the Syrians to hack uh, the U.S. Uh, um, uh, uh, network, might do it. Um, and sure. uh, we would certainly not like that. But but the problem is, uh, or you know, I, I think the the biggest concern that I've heard that people have about this is that the rule, while that may be its intent, that's not its effect. Uh, its effect is much broader than that because it does not distinguish at all between you know offensive hacking uh, and defensive hacking. So uh, when you say uh, offensive hacking is pretty obvious, that's breaking into somebody's network that uh, you don't like or that you want to get information from. Defensive hacking, this is when you are testing your own network right, to see if, testing, if people yeah. can. Okay, so the, uh, the, the theory of this is if the tools are out there, they're being used by bad guys, you need to hire somebody with a white hat who will use the same tools and test to see whether your network will fall prey to a hacker who's using the tools that are already out there. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and one of the problems with the way that the rule is written is that as written, uh, and, and as BIS has stated, they do not intend to control intrusion software itself. Uh, that is what we are hearing. They're going to control the use of intrusion software in a bad way. They're going to control tech, uh, well, in a bad way, meaning, uh, people using it badly. Right. Well, they can't. <laughs> they, I don't even no. They, they, I don't even think that, that there's been an attempt to limit it to that. What they're saying that they're going to control are the the methods to deliver intrusion software, to develop intrusion oh, software, yeah. to to um, monitor and communicate with intrusion software. But it, it, as a practical matter. Uh, it, it controls intrusion software. Right. So when, when they say intrusion software, they're talking about zero days and vulnerabilities. Right. They're talking like about things like, I think when they say we're not trying to control intrusion software, I think what they're saying is we're not trying to control, somebody's out there and they find uh, a vulnerability, an exploit. They, they, the U.S. government, I think, wants them to be able to communicate that to the companies who are trying to develop but defenses. But they don't, they don't want them to build it into a, soft, a software that actually would exploit it or would test for whether it's exploitable. Yes, and, and that's the problem. So it really gets, uh, it, it really um, limits the ability of legitimate companies who are trying to protect us from being able to do that. So Alan Cohen, you, you, you've most recently worried about cybersecurity from the government's point of view at DHS, uh, uh, where do you think this uh, um, this reg is going? Well, I think there's there's a big problem here because the, the reaction to the reg has been almost nearly uniform across all aspects of the, the cybersecurity industry. And so, you know, we've seen... And, and that's a bad reaction, I think. That's a uniformly bad reaction. And so I, I think when you have a regulation that's trying to do all these things in, in, an, in an artful way, and you have traditional providers of technology objecting, and you have... Uh, I think most importantly, <clears throat> the companies bringing new technologies, new good, sci sound cybersecurity technologies to market where the reg is simply sweeping them in uh, as if they are, uh, uh, you know, well, things that need to be controlled from export. Um, I think you're gonna. This presents a real problem for the for yeah, the commerce department in getting to a, an end. It's point. a mismatch between the 
tools for regulation that we have and the problem that we've identified. I, you know, I, I have a theory on this. The theory is that this is this was pushed by a bunch of civil liberties, human rights groups who remember the crypto wars of the 90s when the government was saying encryption is a weapon, software can be controlled, we don't, call it, we don't think it's speech, we think it's, uh, it, it has an effect and we'll control it for its effect. Uh, the government lost that debate, but uh, and, and basically in, encryption is largely but not completely decontrolled. Uh, but I suspect that the civil liberties guys who fought that fight had great envy for the tool and they saw how much of an impact it had and they just are looking for a chance to go back and uh, use all those arguments against um, uh, a kind of technology that they don't like. Oh, this software, is a, it's, a, it's a tool, it's not speech and uh, it needs to be controlled uh, like a weapon. And this seemed like a, like a, a really good way to, to avoid the gaze of the agencies usually uh, interested in this and come from a different direction uh, to get at the, the ends that they want, yeah. uh, kind of to, to the surprise of the agencies that typically deal with this issue. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, mean, I, I frankly have my doubts about whether even the Commerce Department has complete enthusiasm for the, uh, the reg they drafted. Uh, uh, and so what we've got is the... State Department uh, and the human rights enthusiasts saying, well, we love the idea of being able just to say, you know, we don't like Sudan this week, so we'll just turn down the uh, the, the license to them, which is, you know, my experience with uh, them. That's very transactional and uh, very fleeting, their, their view about which licenses should be granted. And it's not something you can count on if you're a company. And it just ignores the way that cybersecurity technology, the way that cybersecurity technology companies, the way that cybersecurity technology research works now. So the irony here is this was pushed in part by uh, uh, civil liberties groups, the human rights groups, uh, and in part by Europeans who were upset about uh, things like hacking team. Uh, um, I I took advantage of all the hack documents uh, uh, to quickly uh, do a search of um, hacking teams' correspondence looking for the term Wassenaar uh, to see what uh, what they said. And it looks to me, although I didn't have much time to do it, as though they were kind of expecting that the Italian government was going to give them a global license to sell anything they wanted wherever they wanted. Uh, uh, so the idea that this is actually going to control uh, hacking is probably highly uh, suspect. Uh, it will only disadvantage U.S. companies who will get this massive regulatory regime, and uh, uh, European companies will get global licenses. Very interesting. Sounds like an exciting weekend that you had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was pretty desperate. Uh, um, all right. Uh, uh, let's turn now to uh, uh, Bitcoin, the blockchain, and Michael Casey. Uh, um, I do want to hear about the uh, move to MIT, but uh, uh, I'm going to ask Jason, to, uh, who is uh, and Alan, who are our experts on Bitcoin, to take over the conversation if they're willing to uh, so that uh, people can stop listening to me and start listening to somebody else. I do want to hear more about your BBC uh, Right to be Forgotten research too. Uh, it sounds like you had a real, real that I, I have not I have not oh, finished not that. That's uh, next and, weekend. Okay. And I, ha- I have a, I have a deal with uh, Ben Wittes of Lawfare. Uh, he's going to try to find me a um, uh, an intern who will actually go through and 
pre-organize some of it so that I don't have to try to uh, cut and paste every name and every story to figure out who was uh, the complainant. Uh, uh, so when he does that, I promise I'll do uh, the analysis. All right, we can do a whole show on that. Uh, yeah, it's um, a deal. So it's, it's a pleasure to welcome my friend Michael Casey to the podcast. Michael spent 23 years in journalism, including 18 at Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal, uh, where he wrote the BitBeat column and uh, was one of the leading writers uh, anywhere on global finance and financial technologies. As Stuart mentioned in the intro, Michael and Paul Vini have a book out called The Age of Cryptocurrency. I commend it to anyone who's interested in Bitcoin and digital currencies. It's a great read. If you know nothing about the topic, you will know a lot more when you finish. And if you know something about it already, you'll have a much deeper understanding uh, when you finish the book. And as Stuart mentioned, it was announced late last week that Michael's joining the MIT Media Lab Digital Currency Initiative starting September, which we'll talk about in a bit. I had the great pleasure of spending a week with Michael at the Blockchain Summit back in May, and I can tell you that besides being a great writer and a, a really deep thinker about global finance and financial technology, he's also a great guy. Uh, and he joins us today from Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, which is a rather significant place in the history of global finance. So for someone like Michael, it's like an Elvis fan going to Graceland. Um, and we'll we'll talk uh, in a few minutes about why you're at Bretton Woods this week. But first, tell us what you'll be doing at MIT and what inspired you to make uh, such a big move at this point in, in your career. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for that very uh, warm introduction. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. Um, well, uh, yes, MIT um, really came along at just this sort of propitious moment for me. I um, have, you know, in keeping with what you just described, been sort of getting deeper and deeper down the Bitcoin rabbit hole over the last uh, couple of years um, and, and really came to the conclusion that, you know, this is a sort of transformative technology. This is something that only comes around once in a while. Um, and, I, and I'm sort of taken by the way that some people in Silicon Valley have described it, that is the blockchain, the underlying technology of Bitcoin, as if it were, uh, the, you know, Internet 2.0, that, that this, is a, this is a new platform. It's a, it's a protocol in the way that TCP IP was a protocol in the 90s. And just as back then we couldn't imagine the multiplicity of applications that um, can you know, eventually, would eventually arise and, and be built on top of that platform. So, to you know, the, the, the possibilities are just really, really quite open when it comes to this. And I think that's and realizing that, realizing that it was more than just you know a currency, uh, that that it really was a new way of <clears throat> of governance, a new form of of organizing relationships between people and of, of storing records and exchanging value. Just sort of made me feel as if it was something that I, I wanted to get involved in. But you know, I'm not a guy that's likely to go and join a startup uh, at this stage of my life and uh, and career. I've got you know two, two kids and college waiting and everything else. Um, but I was very lucky at that summit that you referred to, Jason, to, to meet Brian Ford, formerly an advisor of the White House, now heading the Digital Currency Initiative, and he just put it really as as an ideal opportunity for me to pursue the kind of projects that I'm sort of really quite uh, eager to, 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 to develop around this technology, in particular a number of applications to do with uh, developing countries and, and uh, financial and social inclusion, um, and use MIT as a, uh, as a, as a, as a base, as a, as a really kind of wonderful center for incubating these kinds of ideas and, and projects to take advantage of the incredible tools and you know, innovative capacity that that institution has, and so um, it was just too good an opportunity to, to pass up, basically. So that that's that's some fascinating 
points. Um, and I want to go back to something that, that you said, which is that, um, it's dawning on more and more people that Bitcoin as Bitcoin might, might not really be the big story, that it's in fact the underlying blockchain technology that may truly be the transformational piece. Can you spend 30 seconds just explaining how the, how that works, but then how the, 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 the way the blockchain works can be used uh, to do all sorts of other things besides just uh, a digital currency like Bitcoin. Sure. Um, although uh, once I start wading into this this, this field, uh, there are various minds that come up because it's actually a, a fairly controversial topic in the the notion that that you know we can sort of separate Bitcoin from blockchain and it. It, it, I won't go into it here, but it gets down to whether you, Bitcoin is still, the currency is still critical if you are going to build a decentralized system around, uh, uh, the, the various applications that we can now build on top of the blockchain. But the blockchain basically is the, is the big deal. You can, one way to think of it is Bitcoin, the, the currency, as one or in fact the first use case for, uh, blockchain technology. And blockchain technology, is something really quite unsexy. It's, it's a ledger. And when you put it in those terms, people wonder what the big deal is. But the point is it's a distributed ledger. It's a ledger that uh, keeps track of uh, value. It keeps track of, of transactions. It's a record of, um, of you know, activity, of human behavior. And, and, and it's really, uh, for, the, for all intents and purposes, uh, indelible. It is, um, you know, aside from some of the risks that lie around the possibilities of, of sophisticated attacks, it's generally unhackable because it resides on thousands of computers at the same time. It's a distributed ledger. And that allows us to get away from uh, depending upon institutions that have acted as middlemen, as record keepers, uh, and, and have played this vital role of keeping track of all of our transactions. Um, and, and, and instead defers that role to really a community of, of in, in Bitcoin's case, Bitcoin miners, the companies or the, the, the individuals who are paid for the purpose of confirming and updating and keeping that ledger in a decentralized way. So, so what are those other kind of uses that you can use that ledger for uh, yep. besides Bitcoin? Sure. So um, uh, what I'll use is one example, uh, and then I'll sort of maybe go through that. Just a classic, that's small but important example. We um, uh, we placed our book on the book on the blockchain, right? So we we basically affirmed our copyright to the claim on uh, on the age of cryptocurrency by taking this step. Now it's actually a rather uh, a gimmicky thing to do in the United States because no one's going to really challenge my copyright here. But we did it to, to make a point about the broader application of this particular use. And copyrights are really just one of those ideas, when you get your head around it, is I think shows how versatile this technology is. So because at a certain point in time, we were able to take a hash, that is a, 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 a reduced record of the entire PDF of our, of our book, and enter it into a transaction in the ledger at a specific point in time. And we can basically, at a later date, somebody wanted to prove uh, that, that the, the copy of our book that they had in their hands was indeed the one that, uh, that, that you know, we're claiming to have copyright to, there's a, there's a process that could go through that would, that would then recognize that at that point in time, at that very transaction, as proven by this irrefutable ledger, 
that is the moment in which our copyright was written. And it's a, it's just, it's, as I say, one small use case, but where it becomes quite powerful is in the area of um, digital photography, for example, and derivative artworks, because all of that as well can be reduced into a hash and embedded into a blockchain transaction. And one could imagine uh, that you could create a series of contracts around all of those derivative art uses, and if somebody wants to go ahead and use some piece of, of work that is a derivative of previous works, then there could be a chain of automated contract payments, because the other thing that you can do with Bitcoin is you can create smart contracts and automated money uh, and, and, and distribute the payments down the chain right to the, origin, to the author of the original work. And all of that would be recognized as being completely valid because each of those different derivatives will have been entered into the blockchain at those time-stamped moments and, again, proven by the, the process of proving that ledger, which is what the, the mining activity is all about. So on the one hand you can yeah so on the one hand you can you can kind of take uh current regimes like contract and build them out um make them smarter. Um it also seems like in other ways you can use the blockchain as as the trusted entity in areas of the world where copyright or uh deeds to land uh or debt um the current ways that those things are recorded or observed, uh, or, uh, transacted or not as trusted. Um, and I know you write in the book, uh, about how digital currency, uh, is presenting an opportunity to people in the developed world. Uh, is this kind of the direction that we might see, uh, or the developing world? I'm sorry. Um, is this kind of the direction we might see, uh, those types of transactions around copyright or land deeds or debt or other types of, of, um, of confirmable assets and transactions uh, going? Uh, absolutely. I mean, to, I would say it's probably my primary interest right now in particular is in the, in the realm of uh, property title uh, in the developing world. I, I think, you know, you, you're still going to have the issue of being able to, you know, when it comes to land at least, somebody's going to have to be the certifying authority to recognize that deed, and that's a whole ball of wax in its, its own right. But, the, but, but once you've got that step done, um, there is this very powerful way in which uh, it can be tied. Uh, you know, ownership to that deed can be can be tied to this, and then transferred uh, relatively easily, but also in a very secure way to somebody else. And then there's this fact that you really just can't lose the ledger. It can't it can't be destroyed. And so, obviously, in a lot of developing countries uh, where there are you know imperfect bureaucracies. And we, and we certainly know from some of the topics you guys have been covering here that there's imperfect record keeping uh, the bureaucracies in this country and all over the Western world. So none of these places, of course, are immune to hackers, are immune to um, uh, uh, records being lost and mismanaged. But once you place it into the blockchain, it becomes um, you know, a, a, a much more universally accepted and, and easily transferable and, uh, and really quite flexible tool uh, for people to use. So definitely property title, uh, and that just doesn't have to be for land. We're thinking about ways and you could, you could register assets um, uh, that is movable assets and the like and place that on the blockchain. And of course, the reason why this would be a very valuable thing in the developing world uh, is because once you do that, you can build financing uh, and other tools, insurance and the like uh, on top of that because uh, I'm a, I'm a, um, and, and Jason, of course, you know, Hernando uh, de Soto, who was there at Necker Island with us as well, is a, uh, has made a compelling case 
for decades that uh, what holds people back in these places is not the fact that they uh, don't own their assets, which they do, but that they can't uh, prove them in, in a format that is applicable to a bank or to any other institution that would uh, lend the money or uh, you know, build insurance contract or the like on it. So the idea here is that you can, we can transfer this blockchain-based record of ownership and turn it into a financial tool. So that's a very powerful uh, um, you know, it's a very powerful prospect, at least when it comes to uh, this sort of broader goal of financial inclusion. And, and Michael, how about here in the developed world? Um, you know, you use the example of IP rights both for you know your book and, and other forms of intellectual property. But where do you see the the emerging use cases for either consumers or corporations? I know you and I have talked before about Goldman Sachs and Nasdaq expressing some interest in this. Where do you think the the growth is in the developed world? Well, I do think it's going to come at the enterprise level now, and this is where things are really starting to shift. And we spent a lot of time talking, uh, indeed, in our book about the, the growth of a community around Bitcoin who, who saw it as a potential challenger to the dollar um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a new form of currency. And I think that's going to continue, but I don't think that there's going to be mass adoption for some time uh, because at, at that consumer level, precisely because it's really – it doesn't in, in the Western world. It really doesn't uh, answer that uh, resolve too many problems. It's kind of a, um, a solution looking for a problem because uh, I think people like their credit cards as much as uh, merchants might not. Um, and there's a, there's a sort of a convenient relationship that exists between merchants and credit card companies and companies. And so it's hard. On top of that, you know, Bitcoin remains uh, fairly volatile. It's not as volatile as it was, but you have to worry about that exchange cost if you're thinking that everything that you have. And you own and you price in your life is based in dollars. You need to to worry about that that volatility. So, you know, I, I really don't think mum and pop are going to be buying their groceries in uh, Bitcoin anytime soon. But at the enterprise level, it really starts to get interesting, and that's where we're seeing right now. Particularly, you mentioned Goldman Sachs, uh, Jason, but also um, you know lots of uh, we, we know that every bank right now has a blockchain task force. Deloitte, who I spoke to recently, told me that they have 90 people working on digital currency initiatives, and they're all about trying to find solutions to, to make um, payment systems, settlement systems, data management systems, record keeping, all of that more efficient. Uh, and, and, and so I think what's going to happen is that you know we're going to have uh, Bitcoin or, or blockchain technologies enter into our lives through the back door. Uh, we won't necessarily know that we will be using it, but when we're spending money uh, through you know, the existing financial system, at some point uh, in, in the coming years, that, will, that money will be passing over the rails of a Bitcoin-like network, which means it will be happening so much more quickly. Um, settlement is a big deal because, uh, as, as you would know, you know, it generally takes three days uh, or two to three days for a security stock or a bond or a commodity to be to be settled. And in that period of time, an enormous amount of cash is having to be sitting on the sidelines because nobody wants to be to worry about the counterparty risk that the, that the delivery won't happen. Whereas if you happen to use a blockchain environment where we can digitally denote uh, ownership of both the asset and the money and transfer those you know, more or less instantaneously, um, you're down to virtually you know, real-time settlement, which saves massive amounts of money, which is why the banks are so interested in this, why 
Wyatt Masters, the, the former, former inventor of the credit default swap, is now and a, and a JP Morgan executive for a long time, has gone off and set up a company called Digital Asset Holdings that is trying to uh, develop tools around this technology precisely so that they can create a much more efficient settlement system. It's also why every bank has a task force looking at it and why NASDAQ is, is uh, experimenting with it. That's the kind of world in which we're going to see blockchain technology adopted for now. I think in the, in the long run, we're going to realize that to make all of these systems interoperable, because I think what's going to happen is we're going to have blockchain technology that's not necessarily Bitcoin blockchain technology operate on Wall Street, but to make it interoperable with the rest of the world, um, you're going to need Bitcoin or, or, or something that is decentralized like that, which will link our worlds together, whether it's the payment systems between Russia and, and China, or whether it's, in fact, you know, the Internet of Things, which is just to, just to go on to one other use case that I think people are not going to realize, but our world of gadgets and interconnected appliances and, and all these tools that we expect to be talking to each other in an interconnected way in the future is going to need a secure, provable way to transact and the blockchain gives them that tools, and it's because of this great breadth of, of appliances and assets and owners and all of the, the sheer size of that network, you're going to have to have a decentralized system. You can't build that in-house as Wall Street's trying to do with this other stuff. And so to interconnect that world with the broader payment system, you're going to need to have Bitcoin functioning. Again, this is all going to go on in the background. I think we're not necessarily going to recognize that we ourselves are holding and owning it, but it will be a very, very fundamental part of the overarching financial system. So that points up a, a really interesting point, um, and it, it goes to the questions of what are the, the primary obstacles for the to the growth of Bitcoin or, or the blockchain or kind of an interconnected system? Because in in some ways, this is these are technologies that allow the traditional ways of uh, conducting transactions uh, and settlements smarter. But in, in some ways, this is an entirely different way of transacting things. So, so what do you see as the as the main obstacles uh, to adoption and widespread use, and as you said, an interoperability? Right. Um, there's a number of them. Some of them are te- uh, technical, technological. Uh, some of them are regulatory. I think, um, and some of them are, are like just public perception. Um, I think the latter is going to just come. I, I mean, and, and that's a, a role that I'll, I'll be playing, uh, help, helping to sort of raise awareness, and, and over time maybe I'll become redundant. But um, on the, on the, so, so that will just happen within time, and we'll get away from thinking about Bitcoin as, as nothing but a tool for drug runners and, and pornographers and, and recognize that it's something far more, far more profound. That, I think, just will happen in time. The other two need action. They need society. You know, they need decisions to be made by people. And on the technological side, you know, we, 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 it's not so scalable right now. If we think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, if we just assume Bitcoin is going to be the uh, decentralized cryptocurrency platform that is used, there's an argument for that because it is by far the cryptocurrency with the biggest market cap and therefore it is the most secure. Um, and it's the first mover and all those things. Then they're going to have to figure out how to, it, how to get it, you know, capable of handling potentially trillions of dollars of transactions that would pass through the global financial system as the basis for all of this. Um, and right now, there's a huge debate about how to do that. Um, there's, a, there's a thing called the block size, which is a the, the block is a group of transactions that is proven every 10 minutes to be, you know, a viable 
member of this uh, uh, universal ledger. But each block is a chain of, of, of uh, grouped transactions. And there's a, there's a hard data limit on how much data you can put in each of those blocks. And so it, it, clearly if we want to expand the use of this, thinking is we have to expand the size of the blocks. And there's a very geeky debate right now about, but quite intense one, about how to, whether or not we could find ways to do that off-chain, that is, process a lot of transactions away from the blockchain and then kind of aggregate them and, and then insert them into individual blocks as they go, or, or whether or not, you know, you just go ahead and expand this. And it's difficult to do because um, it requires the consensus of all of the miners, and they all have vested interest in this. So you have a very difficult task in terms of pushing through key structural changes to the technology because you need to have consensus among all those who are using it because they simply, if they, if they judge, if, if more than 50% judge that this change is you know, against their interests, they simply will continue to use the old version of the software rather than the new one. Um, it, it's something that's always an option in any software case, but in this case, it has a profound impact on the capacity to maintain a viable ledger. So that's a challenge. And one of the, one of the ways it's being resolved is people are talking about creating realms in which you can actually do innovation and build out power connecting it to the, Bit, to, to the Bitcoin blockchain, particularly a, a project called Sidechains developed by a company called Blockstream. And these... These projects uh, may well be, we have yet to be proven, but that may be the solution to all that. Nonetheless, all of that realm, that, that kind of scalability question is a big one. And the other is regulatory because, um, you know, I, I really don't see how we are going to magically create a Bitcoin-only world. Um, it, it is inevitably one that is going to have to interface with the dollar, euro, yen, pound world. And those on and off ramps, as they're known, have to be in some way regulated, and they are being regulated. And the question is, um, d d will those regulations be uh, sufficiently uh, robust to, on the one hand, protect the technology from being exploited and destroyed by bad guys, uh, but on the other hand, will they be liberal and uh, you know, flexible enough to permit the kind of innovation that's needed to, to, to make this technology as robust and scalable as it needs to be. So that's a huge dichotomy, um, and you know, there's been various regulatory initiatives, the most prominent, of course, being the BIT license that, that was introduced to, uh, by the New York Department of Financial Services, and there's a big debate about whether or not they found the right balance on all of that. So these questions are going to be key, and they're also especially important because it's a borderless system, um, and therefore, you face obviously a, a, a real challenge in terms of the, the problem of regulatory arbitrage. Um, and it, it does look as if the UK is behaving as a, a, a much more liberal jurisdiction when it comes to how they're going to approach blockchain technology. If not, albeit with a much more strict position that seems on encryption. Um, and, and Switzerland is another area that's sort of painting itself as a rather friendly home. For, for the technology. And so you're seeing companies move from the U.S., innovative companies, and setting up shop in these places because that seems like a, you know, an easier place for them to work, all of which is going to, I think, eventually, once this stuff becomes big enough and important enough, it's going to require some level of international coordination to prevent you know, this, this whole regulatory arbitrage problem.
So, Michael, you, you made reference in your previous answer to the fact that there are uh, there is a perception among a, a large segment of the population that knows a little bit about Bitcoin, that it's just used by drug runners and criminals. And for so many people, uh, you know, if you ask them to the word associate with Bitcoin, they're going to say Mt. Gox and Silk Road without necessarily even understanding a lot about what those terms mean. Um, and, and I know you, you made the observation that a lot of that misperception will change over time, but... What are what are some of the things that can be done affirmatively to try to change that narrative? And and who who do you think is the audience for those efforts? Is it policymakers? Is it is it enterprises, corporations, the general public, or some combination of all of them? Yeah, well, it's, it's really about education. It's about you know people like me um, banging on about why it matters. Um, I think it's I, I don't think it's about education, by the way, in terms of how it works. I I, I think that. Um, there's a, there's a sort of instinctive desire to, for people to understand it because um, it's money and they, they they want to be able to trust it and, and therefore um, they want to understand what they're dealing with and then it becomes very complicated. But uh, but it, it, it should be and could be possible to set all that aside because um, all of us, you know, uh, contribute um, our, our money, our, our, our finances, and huge, um, you know, bases, you know, uh, stores of, of personal information to to banks and to to you know, companies that that are ultimately uh, looking after it without any knowledge at all of how the encryption systems work and, and how secure they may or may not be. These questions do not really come up with the way that that people interact with their smartphones, but for whatever reason, people seem to want to know how Bitcoin works. Um, at some point, one would hope that we can get to a world in which they'll just treat it like the you know, internal combustion engine. You just have to trust that it does. Um, and then I think what the, the more important educational component, therefore, is to focus on why it matters. Uh, and we tried to do this in our book. We just It wasn't really a manual on explaining Bitcoin itself. It was like, no, this is a big deal, and this is why it's a big deal. And so if people need to get their heads around how we have how the current system works, how centralized it is, how the role that these intermediaries, be they banks or governments and agencies and others, have played in regulating you know, our lives and how this would be different, for good or for worse. So, Michael, uh, let, me, let me ask you uh, a, a, um, a dumb question, what, what I, I suspect is a dumb question. My memory is that the, the way this worked is when you were generating Bitcoin, uh, it was dead easy at start, at the start, any idiot with a PC could could get lucky and and uh, uh, mine some Bitcoin. Uh, um, and so it occurred to me that if I had invented this system and somebody did, I would have spent the first uh, uh, six months just mining away for myself, uh, generating massive amounts of Bitcoin, and then let the suckers come in and start doing it uh, from then on. Uh, do we know whether that happened? Do we know for sure it didn't happen? Um, it's been analyzed, and it's largely understood that Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of it, is indeed sitting on a very large amount of Bitcoin. But here's the key. Um, so, well, the other thing I will say that he, he didn't mine it by himself. Um, you know, he, he, we know because we can look back at, you know, how the Genesis block began. Um, you know, he did mine some for himself, but then, of course, he, he very early on invited others into it. And there were just two nodes on the network to start with, a guy called Hal Finney, who was a, uh, a brilliant cryptographer himself, who sadly died last year of, of ALS. Um, 
they were the two nodes to start with. That's all kind of public record. We know their, their, their communications. But more importantly, we know by going back and tracing back to those original blocks, as you can, the blockchain can You can just go to a, a blockchain monitoring service like the one provided, ironically, by a company called Blockchain, uh, that allows you to go back to block number one and see what was there. And then you can trace those movements and see where they are. Have, have those Bitcoins left those wallets? Have they not? And it's from, from fairly sophisticated and, and, uh, and, and unquestioned research that's been done shows that it's still sitting there. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto indeed did generate a lot of them, and he sat on it. Uh, and it's a fascinating idea, because what is he going to do with it? Because the minute he does, um, the whole world will, you know, those wallets, those, those accounts that, that, that hold those Bitcoins are being monitored all the time. Um, we will know when Satoshi Nakamoto spends his first Bitcoin and, and, and potentially, therefore, will identify him or herself. So he's waiting. He's he's waiting for the the uh, a kind of 2008 crisis when the Fed pleads with him to add uh, liquidity to the system, and he says in exchange for uh, an assurance, I won't be prosecuted. I'll be glad. Hey, maybe who knows? Maybe he ends up yeah, He ends up being his own, doing what it was. He 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 uses his seniorage, his central banking power to uh, to add liquidity. Who knows? You know. I mean, it, is, it actually raises the analogy raises an interesting point here, and that is. The fundamental problem that, that uh, exists in, in the creation of any cryptocurrency is, you know, how do you fairly assign seniorage, right? The, 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 the kind of God-given right that accrues to the issue of the currency to create value for themselves. Now, we let the Fed do it because we authorize the Fed to do it through, through Congress and recognize it as an agent of the government, and that's, that's why we give the Fed that right. Um, uh, the sovereign, of course, used to have that power uh, through the, the minting of gold coins. Well, here's a situation in which a private citizen has that power. Um, the miners in Bitcoin are, are you know, they, they're constantly issuing the currency themselves and earning that right, but they, they pay for that right by performing vital functions, particularly the, the securing the blockchain, but also uh, you know, processing transactions. But, but in the case of uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, when, as you say, it was very, very easy and rather costless to do so, you know, just amassed an enormous amount of wealth out of it. Um, it, it, it was it was one of the reasons why, in some respects, he had to become anonymous, because the suspicions that typically arise around a private citizen who is issuing a currency and then asking everybody to use it is that it's it's a pump and dump scheme. That this is so all, so many of these altcoins that have come up ever since fall foul of the community because they say, "Look, and you're just." Pumping and dumping here. Whether it might be a perfectly legitimate coin, but the, but the suspicion that the uh, uh, the inventor, the creator, is just making money for themselves is a very strong instinct. So you have to get around that, of course, to to, to make the thing work. And in some respects, the anonymity and the pseudonymity that that you know was applied to Satoshi Nakamoto um, was a critical part of that. But it's also an interesting illustration of. If you can separate the Bitcoin and the blockchain aspects, we've talked about the currency pieces, but the the way that the trust uh, uh, aspects of the blockchain work, there's no similar record for the the inventor of a particular startup and what financing they got when and and how and 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 who you have to trust for all of that information. In this case, 
you know, rather than the entities and the in, uh, uh, that invested or such, you can go back on the ledger, as as Michael described, and look at everything that is that's happened. So there's a certain anonymity that comes along with that, but there's also a certain level of transparency uh, that doesn't exist in other mechanisms. I find that true. You know, Michael, this is something Michael and I and, and others have talked about before as well. That people tend to focus on the perceived anonymity of Bitcoin and the blockchain, and not enough on the transparency that. It, that it provides. Michael, before we, we run out of time, I did want to give you uh, a chance to talk about why you're at your personal Graceland this week. <laughs> I love that reference. Um, uh, well, interestingly, this is July, which means that is uh, actually the anniversary of that conference. It's now uh, the 71st anniversary. Um, and it, look, it was just a kind of a neat setting to, to gather. This was organized by Consumers Research, uh, um, a, a not-for-profit that's headed by Joe Colangelo down in D.C. And um, uh, originally it was a consumer reports product, but they've become very interested in, in kind of the advocacy around um, consumer rights. And there's a view that, you know, Bitcoin and how it's regulated and, and, and how it functions has huge uh, implications for, for consumer rights. And so these guys have been very interested in trying to develop the conversation and help build the regulatory uh, base in particular, but also kind of promote public awareness around the technology. And so they've gathered here uh, a group of us. There's about 20 of us, some from different backgrounds, some with some lawyers, a few people like me with, you know, kind of a, a public uh, uh, research and, and, and writing background. Uh, technologists, a few others from MIT, um, really just to, to, to talk through what the opportunities are for the technology, what are the barriers towards adoption, and, and, and maybe actually come up with some sort of white paper at the end that would uh, lay out uh, a, a regulatory path or a kind of a best practice thing. It's just one of many contributions to the debate, of course, but there's a sense that doing it in this collaborative workshop environment, we might actually be able to come up with something that is... It is quite constructive. I, I have to say, sounds a little like having a hip hop summit at Graceland myself. But uh, uh, it, 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 it alluded to the fact that this is actually yes, the, the rebels have uh, have invaded the uh, the fortress or something. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you very much. This was terrific, uh, uh, very informative. Uh, uh, Michael Vadis, Jason Weinstein, Alan Cohen, Meredith Rathbone, uh, and Michael Casey, thank you all. Uh, uh, the Cyberlaw Podcast uh, does accept feedback. If you want to send notes to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com or leave messages at 202 202- Eight six two five seven eight five. We'd welcome them. Uh, and uh, just in closing, this is episode seventy five of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Annie Anton and Peter Swire from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Then we'll have one more episode until we go on hiatus for most of August. Uh, although I'm uh, uh, kind of toying with the idea that we might be able to do one or two little bonus episodes uh, during August, but uh, no promises. Uh, uh, you should expect to go cold turkey. Uh, uh, and we hope you'll join us uh, in September as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.